MSW Media. Today's episode of The Daily Beans is brought to you by our patrons. Our premium subscribers make the show possible, and in return, they get an ad-free feed, access to my personal show notes, the photos submitted in the good news, VIP meet-and-greet and pre-sale event tickets, invites to our private social media groups, and access to bonus content. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash thedailybeans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. Today, the Department of Justice has granted limited use immunity for Kosh Patel in the clearest sign yet they are targeting Trump directly. Politico gets the eight Eastman emails due to a court filing error. Hillary sues Donald and Alina Haba for $1 million in sanctions for their frivolous lawsuit. The U.S. is exploring whether it can investigate the Elon Saudi Twitter deal. And the Trump Organization settles out of court in the case where security assaulted protesters. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everyone. Absolutely huge news just dropping with the Kosh Patel immunity. We were talking about it yesterday a little bit on the beans. And then earlier today, Hugo Lowell put out a story in The Guardian that they were considering it. And we just got now, just the same day, hours later, confirmation that an order has been issued. So very big news. Also later in the show, I'm going to be talking with Brad Jenkins from the AAPI Victory Fund with the uh, midterms right around the corner. I want to talk to him. And Dana will be back tomorrow. So yay, I miss her when she's gone. I know you do too. We have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. So I'm going to read you the way that the show was scripted before this breaking news came out. From Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, the Justice Department is weighing whether to grant immunity to Trump advisor Kosh Patel and forces testimony about claims that highly sensitive government documents the FBI seized during the uh, search warrant execution at Mar-a-Lago were declassified. And that was according to sources familiar with the matter earlier today. Then from The Wall Street Journal, we found out that Kosh Patel has been granted immunity, limited use immunity from the Department of Justice and that the order to compel him to testify has been issued. The status of the documents has emerged as relevant to the criminal investigation surrounding Trump's mishandling of the national security materials because that could strengthen a potential case that the former president was in violation of state secrecy laws. Trump advisors, such as Patel, have claimed repeatedly since the search in August that the documents bearing classification markings found at the property had, in fact, been declassified before the former president departed the White House. The claims that the documents were declassified have not been supported by any evidence, though, and Trump's lawyers have not repeated the assertions in related legal disputes before a judge or in court filings where they could face penalties for lying about it. Justice Department officials are examining whether to allow federal prosecutors to seek an order from the chief U.S. District Court judge, that's Beryl Howell, granting him limited use immunity. And now we know that they have and the judge has signed the order and that will compel his testimony on the declassification issue and other matters, according to sources. This consideration for immunity for Patel appears to center on the fact that as one of Trump's appointed representatives with the National Archives, he could offer a material insight into the nature of the documents and how the former president regarded the records. If he knew they were declassified, 
Did he actually think they were declassified? Did he say they were declassified? Probably not. Also, if if Kosh Patel lies to the grand jury, then he will be subject to a 1001 charge, which is, you know, jail. So there's no one on the ladder between Kosh and Trump. This is the clearest indication that I was, I, I think I was right when I said when Garland was taking those three weeks to decide whether or not to sign off on the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, I said he wasn't deciding whether to sign off on just the search warrant. He was deciding whether or not he would be willing to prosecute because if that search turned up fruits of a crime, he, you know, he would need to, he would need to prosecute. And so that's what I think is happening here. And they've brought on David Raskin, one of the best SIPA trial lawyers in America. And now they have the limited use immunity. That means he's not simply looking to get the documents back, right? This isn't about Garland saying, hey, just please tell us where the rest of the stuff is. We just want the stuff back. That's not what is happening here. He's looking to prosecute. And if they have an ironclad case, if they can get what they need from Kosh Patel, I think they'll go forward with at least the espionage part. The obstruction part's already sort of clear, right? And the 2071 concealment of documents, already kind of clear. But the classification status is what bears, you know, on whether or not espionage can be charged. And the guys at Politico got their hands on the eight Eastman emails that had to be turned over to the January 6th committee under the crime fraud exception. This is the latest batch. There have been previous batches. And they got the, they got the emails from a link that Eastman's lawyers failed to deactivate in a late night Department of Justice filing last night. Here's the story from, from uh, Nicholas Wu, Kyle Cheney, and Josh Gerstein at Politico. Donald Trump's attorneys saw a direct appeal to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas as their best hope of derailing Biden's win in the 2020 election, according to emails newly disclosed to congressional investigators. Quote, we want to frame things so that Thomas could be the one to issue some sort of stay or other circuit justice opinion saying Georgia is in legitimate doubt. That is Trump attorney Kenneth Cheesebro in a December 31st, 2020 email to Trump's legal team. Cheesebro contended that Thomas would be, quote, our only chance to get a favorable judicial opinion by January 6th, which might hold up the Georgia count in Congress. Quote, I think I agree with this, Eastman replied later that morning, suggesting that a favorable move by Thomas or other justices would, quote, kick the Georgia legislature into gear to help overturn the election results. The messages were part of a batch of eight emails obtained by Politico that Eastman had sought to withhold from the January 6th committee. He filed appeal after appeal. Give me more time. I need another thing. And then after they got, after they got the emails, he's like, they, they, I had an appeal pending and was, I, send them back to me, destroy them, shred them. He was desperate to keep these out of the hands of investigators. House General Counsel Doug Letter acknowledged Wednesday afternoon that his office effectively released the messages by including a link to them in copies of messages publicly filed with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Of course, I think probably Eastman's lawyer should have deactivated those links, but either way, the emails are out. Quote, we were not aware that the links in Dr. Eastman's email remained active and had no intention to provide this type of public access to the materials at this stage. Providing public access to this material at this point was purely inadvertent on our part, Letter told the appeals court in a brief letter. The emails, as produced to the committee, included formatting errors that removed I's and L's, and Politico included the missing letters for a little bit of clarity. Thomas, 
is the justice assigned to handle all emergency matters arising out of Georgia. We know that. And he would have been the one to receive any urgent appeal, emergency stay of Trump's lawsuit to the Supreme Court, the one that he signed on to, knowing that it had inaccurate information. And that is a fact that seemed to be part of the Trump's legal team's calculus. Rulings from so-called circuit justices are typically stopgap measures aimed at preserving the status quo until the full Supreme Court weighs in. We've seen a lot of these in recent days. The brief administrative stay for Lindsey Graham's testimony in Georgia, the brief administrative stay for Kelly Ward and Michael Ward to have their T-Mobile records turned over to the January 6th committee. That's the kind of thing they were looking for from Judge Thomas. Because the Trump lawyers hoped that a favorable order from him would embolden the state GOP-controlled legislatures and Congress or Pence to block final certification of Joe Biden's victory. They were not looking for legal relief. They were looking to cast doubt. This is a very common thing we've seen Trump do multiple times over and over again, telling Zelensky, hey, do us a favor, though. Just say you're investigating Biden and I'll release the aid. I'll release the military aid to you. Just say you're investigating. Hey, acting Attorney General Rosen, just say there's problems with Georgia's election and let me and the the Republicans in Congress do the rest. Hey, Raffensperger, just say there's a problem with your ballots and, and we'll do the rest. In another December 31st email, Cheese Bro laid out this strategy. If we can just get this case pending before SCOTUS by January 5th, ideally with something positive written by a judge or justice, hopefully Thomas, I think it's our best shot at holding up the count of a state in Congress, holding up the count, delaying it. In one scenario, Cheesebro proposed encouraging Senate Republicans to filibuster long enough to delay the joint session of Congress on January 6th, ignoring limitations on the length of debate set out in the Electoral Count Act. He also described how Trump allies could use inaction by the courts to build political pressure against the Biden inauguration. Now, lots of things to remember here, including Rudy calling Tuberville and asking him to slow down, just slow down the count. And Eastman emailing the Pence team saying, hey, the debates took more than two hours for Arizona. That's in violation of the Electoral Count Act. So since you don't like and care about the Electoral Count, it's not as sacrosanct as you say, Pence, why not violate it just a little bit more and delay the count for another 10 days? That was another email, by the way, sent over to the committee under the crime fraud exception. Also of note, Eastman and Cleta Mitchell, both who are part of these emails, communicated a lot with Jenny Thomas. And... Jenny Thomas sent emails out to Georgia and Arizona lawmakers to certify fraudulent electors. And don't forget, Ted Cruz and Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to lobby Kelly Loeffler, then Georgia senator, to object to the Georgia electors. And she ultimately refused to do so. She was gonna. But then the attack on the Capitol happened and she says, no, I'm not gonna. This is all part of the plot. The lawsuits were not about seeking legal relief. They were about delaying and creating a little bit of doubt for the Georgia legislature to certify fraudulent electors. That is a conspiracy to defraud the United States and to obstruct an official proceeding. 371-1512-C2, plain as fucking day. And inundated with lawsuits and ongoing trials, the Trump Organization Wednesday chose to settle with anti-MAGA protesters who were beaten up by corporate security guards outside of Trump Tower in 2015. Remember this case? 
They did that rather than trying to convince a Bronx jury. After three days of struggling to find jurors who didn't already have strong feelings about Donnie and his eponymous company, a difficult undertaking in liberal New York City, defense lawyers at the last minute, settle, settle, settle. Minutes after Justice Andrew Cohen sent potential jurors out to lunch at midday, Trump Organization lawyers walked up to the protesters and uh, presented them with a stack of papers that they quietly signed. A lawyer representing the Trump org, Jeffrey Goldman, was overheard telling the judge that everything was golden and that nearly everyone had finished signing the agreement. Efrain Galicia, the lead plaintiff, signed the paperwork along with Florencia Tejada Perez, Miguel Villalobos, and Norberto Garcia. Quote, the parties all agree that the plaintiffs in the action and all people have a right to engage in peaceful protest on public sidewalks, read a joint statement, which was also signed by Trump Organization defense lawyer Alina Haba. But Alina Haba might not be long for the lawyering world. Former Secretary of State and Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton filed a motion for sanctions against Donald Trump and his lawyers for filing a factually and legally defective suit, calling the former president's failed RICO case a political stunt. The 32-page motion was also filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida on behalf of John Podesta, Robbie Mook, the DNC, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Charles Halliday Dolan Jr., who previously filed his own motion for sanctions, Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, Nellie Orr, Bruce Orr, Igor Danchenko, and Ronnie Jaffe. Though Trump alleged each figured in some way into an alleged racketeering plot against his 2016 campaign and presidency, the case went nowhere fast. And despite the allegations of a grand conspiracy, U.S. District Judge Donald Middlebrooks dismissed the case in its entirety after the various defendants sought that very outcome. Middlebrooks concluded that a federal statute of limitations had passed on claims related to 2016 and found the Trump case had little to no merit. Middlebrooks also retained jurisdiction in the event that defendants sought sanctions. He saw it coming. And that time has come, and the defendants are seeking north of $1 million in legal fees and costs. The sanctions filing began by urging Middlebrooks not to waste an opportunity to make Trump and his lawyers pay fees and costs and be subject to other relief the court finds just for filing a lawsuit that was unwarranted on the facts, unsupported by the law, and imposed substantial burdens both on defendants and this court. Quote, despite being alerted to the many deficiencies in the initial complaint by one round of motions to dismiss, plaintiff and his counsel pressed forward on an amended complaint that fixed none of the problems and instead simply added more invective and irrelevant factual allegations to what was already a shotgun pleading. That's the beginning of the filing, headlined by Clinton's lawyer, David Oscar Marcus, and another lawyer of, of hers, David Kendall. The court should not countenance the abuse of its resources or allow significant burdens to be imposed on defendants, many of them individuals who have devoted their careers to public service in service of plaintiff's political stunt. Under these circumstances, sanctions against both plaintiff and his counsel are appropriate under 28 U.S. Code 1927. This court may order plaintiff's counsel to reimburse defendants for the fees and costs associated with their motions to dismiss the amended complaint and the instant motion for sanctions under the court's inherent authority, as well as the Defend Trade Secrets Act, the court may impose sanctions on plaintiff himself and require a plaintiff to reimburse defendants for all the fees and costs incurred as a result of his suit, including those associated with responding to the initial complaint and the amended complaint and with the instant motion for sanctions. 
and and strange things are afoot on Twitter. I, I noticed that I went from following about 12,000 people to about 9,000 people overnight, and I never actually unfollowed anyone. But as it turns out, Twitter unfollowed them for me. And thousands of people who were following me were forced unfollowed. Then I reached out to multiple Democratic blue checks and friends on Twitter. They had experienced the exact same thing. It was almost as if Twitter had targeted profiles with pronouns in them or something and removed followers. Meanwhile, right-wing accounts went up by tens of thousands of followers in a day or two. Something fucking fishy is going on, and I'm going to continue to look into it. But so is the U.S. Treasury. Because U.S. officials are weighing whether to open a formal investigation into Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter as the new details emerge about the privileges granted to large foreign investors, namely the Saudis, under terms of the deal. A person familiar with the developments said Wednesday that Treasury had contacted Twitter to learn more about the structure of its new ownership and the confidential agreements Musk struck with his foreign investors, including the Saudi Prince's Holding Company, a subsidiary of the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund, QIA, that's the one that uh, Tom Barrack was fucking around with, and Binance, a cryptocurrency exchange that was founded in China but has since moved its operations elsewhere. Of particular interest is whether any of those foreign investors would have special privileges to access personal data about Twitter's users. According to people familiar with Musk's purchase of Twitter, those agreements give those who invested $250 million or more access to information beyond what a lower-level investor would receive. The Saudi and Qatari funds and Binance have all invested above that level. But what that additional access includes is not known. As a U.S. citizen, Musk's purchase of Twitter is not subject to review, but the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States could investigate the role of foreign investors in the company and order changes in their involvement. Now, foreign access to American-sensitive personal data has been a top concern for U.S. national security officials. And uh, one of these experts said Saudi Arabia's role could also concern U.S. officials. Quote, sensitive personal data by itself would certainly be enough of a national security risk for the committee to be curious about it. There are a number of countries where foreign government ownership has been a real concern, and certainly Saudi Arabia's in that group. A 2018 legislative update to the CFIUS rules gives the CFIUS the authority to examine minority stakes by foreign investors in critical areas, including businesses that hold sensitive personal data. Us, the Twitter users, the product. Andrew Grotto, a former senior director for cybersecurity policy in the Obama and Trump administrations, who has focused on CFIUS, said access to the information could prove a vital security concern. You think? Quote, that is an area where I think CFIUS has some pretty robust authority to ensure that Americans' personal data is not exploited nefariously by a foreign government. That springs to my mind, at least as one major vector, for CFIUS to pursue an investigation. White House officials previously have discussed the possibility of a national security review of the acquisition. Additionally, officials at the FBI talk about a buried lead. The FBI looked into potential counterintelligence risk posed by the deal this past spring. Though it's not clear whether the matter was studied by senior officials at the Bureau or if those discussions are still active. All right, everybody, just a few days left to go to the midterm elections. Next up, I'll be talking to Brad Jenkins from the AAPI Victory Fund. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey, everybody, it's AG, and I just wanted to take a second to thank our patrons and tell you about a new weekly wrap-up bonus episode that I'll be recording, a full bonus episode that comes out on the weekends, and it'll be for patrons. I know a lot of people have said, man, I miss my beans on the weekends. Well, now we're going to have a weekly wrap-up episode. And for as little as three bucks a month, patrons get the ad-free premium feed. They get access to the new Weekend Daily Beans weekly wrap-up episode, pre-sale tickets for live shows, invites to meetups and meet and greets with the hosts, uh, access to our private social media groups. You get links to our bi-monthly happy hour Q&A on Zoom, plus a whole host of merch, including stickers, mugs, and t-shirts for signing up. And if you can't afford a membership, we have had over a thousand patrons donate a one-year subscription to those who can't swing it. For just 36 bucks a year, you can donate a premium feed to someone in need And you can also sign up for that program if you want to get on the list to receive one. Or if you want to donate one, just do that at dailybeanspod.com and look for patrons helping patrons. For more information on becoming a premium subscriber, head to patreon.com slash thedailybeans or search for us on Supercast. And thanks so much to all those who make the show possible. Hi, everybody. It's AG from The Daily Beans. Hey, this is Kimberly Johnson, host of the Start Me Up podcast. Hi, it's Frangela from The Final Word and Idiot of the Week podcast. Hi, this is Jody Hamilton of the From the Bunker podcast. Hi, it's Mariah and Steve from, from How, How We, we Win. Win. And we are joining forces to support the How We Win Fund. The midterms are coming, and the best way we can fight back against the Republicans is to support Democrats in key battleground states. Our democracy is under attack, but we don't agonize. We We organize. Yes, we do. Together, we can protect and expand our Democratic majority this November. We are so close to a Cinna mansion-proof majority in the Senate. Take them out. Join the MSW Media family of podcasts and support the races that need us the most by donating to Swing Left's National Impact Fund. Just one donation goes directly to all of Swing Left's top races. A GOP stoking hate, peddling lies, and suppressing our vote means we need everyone to step up to protect voting rights, civil rights, abortion rights, the environment, constitutional gender equality, the government, our institutions, all the things. Do it. We beat Trumpism before, and together we will make history again. So go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win to donate what you can, share this with your friends and family, and let's show the GOP that the grassroots persistence is here to stay. This This is How We Win. win. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am happy to be joined today by Brad Jenkins. He served as President Obama's Associate Director in the White House Office of Public Engagement. He's the president of the AAPI Victory Fund. Brad, welcome. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk to you again before the election, so I'm so glad you're joining me today. And and what I wanted to talk about, because I know some of the conversations we've had in the past focused on kind of this huge blind spot in AAPI polling and data, but there's new stuff out from the Pew Research Center with uh, facts about Asian-American eligible voters in this election cycle. Can you talk a little bit about those new polling data? Yeah, and and we did a a huge poll as well, too, Allison. But I think the biggest thing from our perspective is just the number of Asian-Americans, one, that are eligible and fired up to vote, 
um, this cycle. I think last cycle we saw Asian Americans break records with turnout. And a lot of that was attributed to Donald Trump, to be candid. It was Donald Trump racist scapegoating um, really galvanized the Asian American community to push back against Asian hate and scapegoating and Wuhan and Kung flu and, and all of this stuff coming from the Oval Office. And what we're seeing this cycle is Asian Americans are even more motivated to vote. Three in five Asian American voters are extremely motivated to vote in 2022, which is uh, which is great news. Yeah, it, it really is. And I know that there are certain states where the AAPI population, especially the voting population and engaged voter population is much higher. Let's talk a little bit about that, because these tend to be uh, blue states, don't they? They do. Um, although this cycle, you know, look, all of these battleground states, we're talking states like Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, states where all of these uh, up and down the ballot, all of these candidates um, are up for grabs. You know, Senate, um, gubernatorial, secretary of state, Asian Americans play a huge role. In a state like Nevada, we are 12 percent of the electorate. Um, in a state like Georgia, you know, if not for the Asian American community, uh, particularly the South Asian community in the state of Georgia, there, there would be no senator uh, Ossoff and Warnock. So this moment right now, you know, cycle after cycle, I think Asian American voters are typically overlooked and, and underfunded. Um, but we're seeing that change dramatically. I think we're seeing candidates and campaigns understand that in order to win, they have to have a strategy and a plan on how to turn out our community. And and even though the number of eligible voters in the AAPI community is up 9% from 2018, we are, it looks like, seeing a little bit of a drop-off in support for Democrats and a little bit of an uptick in support for Republican candidates. Did you find anything out through your polls and researching about that phenomenon? Yeah, look, I think as with any midterm cycle, you're going to see a bit of a shift, right, from, from the, the party in power. I think overall top lines, Asian Americans are still overwhelmingly voting uh, or inclined to vote for Democrats two to one. But the short answer is, yeah, I mean, the, the, the majority of Asian American voters, much like the majority of voters um, of all communities, see the country overall as on the wrong track. And Democrats, you know, are in power. And so there will be there will be uh, some some Asian American voters that are voting Republican for sure. I think overall and on pace in these battleground states that we're focusing on, um, I'm really looking at young Asian American voters um, because that is really the base. If you're looking at, you know, who are the most motivated? Um, what is the fastest growing uh, part of the Asian American community? And who's really leading as it relates to Democrats? And it's that 18 to 34 um, young Asian American voters who are, in fact, you know, issue by issue, actually more progressive than any community. Um, and so while we are seeing, you know, some attrition and some, you know, valleys with some of the older Asian American voters, I think it's being equally matched with new voters, new, you know, first time voters um, and 18 to 34 year old um, Asian Americans that are fired up to vote. 
Yeah, there have been a dramatic increase in in youth voter turnout and and especially in the AAPI community because of, you know, gun violence, climate, you know, domestic violence, democracy, issues like that, you know, the overturning of Roe and bodily autonomy, privacy. And I do see, you know, with some of the youth voters that I speak to, you know, there is a huge concern and still a, a, a huge and growing concern about domestic political terrorism particularly in the AAPI community, like because of things that you said, the things that Trump, you know, drove with his horrible anti-Asian and Pacific Islander rhetoric, uh, especially in the last few years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, look, our community, the exciting thing for me, I am both Asian American and African American. And so it was a, a pretty special moment to see not just the Asian American community, but all communities stand up against Trump's hate, because as we know, his hate was directed at everyone. <laughs> his hate was not just directed at our community. His hate was directed at the immigrant community, at the black community, the LGBTQ community. And so, you know, what we're seeing on the ground, especially in a state like Georgia, I keep coming back to Georgia just because I know how important of a state it is. B. Wynn, who's on the ballot running for secretary of state, the work that she's doing, bringing Black, Asian, LGBTQ. And you're right, this youth vote is is special. And I, I can't, you know, I feel like every cycle we don't do enough to just to thank the youth movement. But what's happening around gun violence and what's happening around particularly young women, you know, it's not just states like Kansas. We're seeing it in states, especially with early vote numbers and voter registrations among young women. This election will be will be won. If Democrats do win, it will be because of young people and be because of because of people of color and because of women. And that's the same, you know, abortion rights, as you were mentioning, abortion access, typically not really a priority issue for Asian American voters. Um, we did our poll pretty shortly after the Dobbs decision. It's now a top three issue for our community. So you're right. This this uh, you know, this is a a galvanizing moment for for young Asian American voters. And I'm feeling good that they're going to turn out. Yeah. And I remember, you know, you you served uh, in the Obama administration. And I, I know I talk about this a lot on the show, but uh, shortly after the 2016 election, he appeared on a podcast, Pod Save America. And it was asked, like, oh, you're the hope guy. Give us some hope here. And he said, it's in the young people. It's the people who are, you know, kids right now that, you know, in the next four years, eight years are going to be turning, you know, becoming a voting age. And, um, you know, he said that the, the, you know, the youth vote is going to wash over this country and it's going to, it's going to make a huge difference. And that was what kind of gave him hope was looking down the road. Tell me a little bit about what the AAPI Victory Fund is doing and looking even further down the road and, and getting more an expansive uh, data. I know you've partnered with a lot of progressive organizations to do this research. What what are what are some of the things you're looking for further down the road of the future? Because we, you know, we got to play the long game. Yeah, no, it's such a great question. Well, first off, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with with Barack here. And and to be honest, I think you know our Democratic Party and a lot of our state Democratic parties and you know institutions, we just don't invest enough in reaching young voters, a lot of times we get the excuse, well, it's very hard to reach young voters. And, you know, that is really the future. It's a jump ball, whether 
this next generation are going to be, you know, fired up Democrats and voting up and down the ticket or they're not. So really agree with you there. On what we're doing, I mean, the biggest thing to your point is data. The the voter file for Asian Americans is perhaps the worst of any community because we're so diverse. We're, you know, there's like 30 different, actually even more, 30 different countries and nationalities and languages, so many different sub-ethnic groups. It's very different. You know, if you're a Filipino voter in Clark County, Nevada, you are obviously very different than an Indian American voter in Gwinnett. And our voter file treats them all equally. Um, and so if you're knocking doors or you're making phone calls or you're doing lit or digital ads, it doesn't tell you much if it just says Asian American voter, right? So a lot of the work that we're doing is breaking down that data so that we actually, the voter file is about 15%, you know, nation of origin for Asian American voters. And we're getting that closer to 80%, which is very exciting. And then the other thing is motivation. Of all communities, our community needs more motivation. We feel as if our community is not as centered. At, and you see this with you know advertising, you see this with door knocking, really being strategic with how we're reaching the Asian American vote is not happening. So we're doing a lot of this. We have uh, youth vote rallies all around the country in Nevada and Georgia. We're doing a national get out the vote event with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, this weekend in Chicago, where we're going to have, you know, not just Senator Tammy Duckworth, not just 21 Asian Americans running for local office in the Chicagoland area, but we have young people. We have activists. We're going to have comedians. You know, Jimmy O. Yang's going to join us. Asif Mondi's going to join us. We're really, again, trying to show that we do have power. We just have to, we just have to realize it. So, the work, you're right, the work starts today. I think the day after the election, the work continues. And in many ways, the work really begins because we know, you know, we don't want to look at the polls. We don't want to look at early vote numbers. But regardless of how this turns out, we know that there's still going to be a fight to codify Roe. We know that there's still a fight to reform the Supreme Court. And we know that there's still going to be a fight, you know, uh, on every one of these issues. So we still have to stay, stay fighting well past election day. Yeah, and, and those data are, are going to be, it's gold. That is a, a gold mine because, we you know, we need to meet these uh, new voters where they are, find out what matters to them and, you know, meet them where they are. And by the way, Jimmy O. Yang, he and I go way back. Uh, we used to do comedy shows all the time together in yeah, Los Angeles and San Diego. You have to come to our show then. You have to escape. You have to escape <laughs> the podcast booth for one day and come to our show. <laughs> yeah. And if I can't make it, you really have to tell Jimmy I said hello. He is so funny. And uh, I know he's going to motivate a lot of people. So that's, uh, you know, and, and get people laughing. So that's really that's awesome. Tell Yeah. Tell him I said hi. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. And, and thank you so much. That is why, you know, talking about this, these data, mining it and putting it to good use. That is why the, the AAPI Victory Fund is so important. So I just want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Because understanding where future voters are and meeting them there, I think, is the key to long-term preservation of democracy. Allison, thank you so much. And education is super important. And the work that you do every day is, is so, so important. So thank you. Appreciate it. No problem. Tell everyone where they can find and follow you and get more information about the research that you're doing. You guys can follow me at, at Brad Jenkins on all social handles. And I know it's the worst Asian name of all time. It's very confusing. And then the organization itself is AAPI Victory Fund um, on all, all handles. 
All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hi, I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Are you struggling with the political upheaval of the current moment? Maybe you're trying to figure out how to keep going and fight for a better world. Well, starting in October, we're bringing you a brand new podcast made for the here and now. It's called Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. Hosted by me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a renowned activist and leadership expert, Living Through It hosts weekly interviews with guests who are changing the world from the ground up. We're offering you advice on how to continue working toward a better future in the face of burnout and exhaustion. And our aim is to inspire you, create hope, and share a collective vision for a more just and equitable future. I hope you'll join us on Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. Men cannot know the anguish of being ruled ineligible on anatomical grounds beyond one's control. Slaves can perhaps understand eunuchs, too, and perhaps even those doomed nobles like the deposed Emperor Romanos Diogenes, whose eyes have been put out. But not men. This podcast is brought to you by Empress, The Secret History of Anna Kay, the new book by Greg Oliar, now available on Amazon. If the truth is ever to be told, I am the only one left to tell it, and tell it I must. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, what the mutt, which is where I badly try to guess... (laughs) what uh, mix breeds your, your rescue pup is. Find the cat. Send me a picture. I'll try to find your cat. Cats are very bad at hiding. Some are very good, but some are very bad. Halloween photos, especially pets in Halloween costumes. Any holiday photos you want to send. A shout out to a loved one. You want to shout out your small business. Something you're creating. Let me know what you're making. Anyway, you can send it all to us at dailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact. Please make sure you're registered to vote. Know how to vote. Have a plan to vote. And patrons and supercasters, check your inboxes for a link to RSVP for a meetup next Friday in Scottsdale. All right, first up from pronouns he and him, anonymous. Hello, Beans Queens. Dana, I'm so glad you're feeling okay. Hopefully that won't happen again, but I'm glad you had a medical assistance close by. And oh my goodness, the White House monkeypox czar is amazing. And I'm going to marry him as soon as I finish listening to the latest Daily Beans. For my pet tax below is my corgi, Willow barely puts up with costumes. She's also known by her alter ego, super unimpressed girl. But every day she saves my life and brings humor and love to the house. 
and a pic of my kitten Emma, who is a serious talker and chases the dog. No costume needed. Love the Daily Beans. It's so informative. Can't wait till the next one comes out. It's been keeping me sane and I've learned a lot. AG, thanks for sharing your story for those of us who missed it when you posted it a while back. Love you both. And look at the corgi in the Supergirl outfit. Absolutely fucking adorable. Oh my gosh. And the kitty. Little Tuxie. So cute. Thank you so much for sending that in. Uh, And I'll pass that message on to Dana right now. Next up for Matt, pronouns he and him, longtime follower on Twitter, and then a few months ago, added the podcast to my daily routine. My good news today is a shout out to my amazing wife, Siska. November 8th is a huge day for her. Not only is it our eight-year wedding anniversary, but it will also be her first time voting after narrowly missing the deadline in 2020. We're hoping for a better result than last time our anniversary landed on election day six years ago. But Tuesday will mark another huge milestone as she launches the Kickstarter for her product that has been over four years in the making. She created a wearable changing station for parents to use to change their babies in areas with no changing table. It's called a Chikaru. <laughs> Chikaru, I love it. And it was created after our own frustrations with changing our daughters. More information can be found at our website, chikaru.com. That's C H I K I roo.com. She deserves all the credit for fighting through all the challenges that come with creating a new product from scratch. And Tuesday, she finally gets to enjoy the payoff. Attached is a picture of me and our daughters on Halloween, which also happens to be my birthday. Happy birthday. A picture of Siska with her creation and one of my mom modeling it. Thanks for all the hard work and everything you do. These Halloween costumes are absolutely excellent. The witch and the princess and the gladiator. And it's your birthday. I mean, Halloween birthday. It's not that, like, there's nothing better. And here's the Chikaroo. Oh, what a cool idea. Look at that. It's like a, you wear it and it's to, ch- oh my gosh, that's brilliant. That is so brilliant. And I would feel so much better about placing a child down on something of mine than on the changing station that they have in public places. Awesome. So that's Chikaroo. I think, let me, let me get the website again. I don't want to get it wrong. Chikaroo.com. C-H-I-K-I-R-O-O. Chikaroo.com. All right. Next up from Stephen from Adelaide. He, him. I don't have any specific good news per se, but when I previously shared good news with you about my daughter Poppy's pronoun defense of her favorite roller derby player, I sent photos of the very young Poppy and infant Matilda in their Woody and Baby Buzz Halloween costumes. I remember Allison said that I should definitely send photos of my wife and I getting in on the Halloween action too. Well, this year, after requests from my two girls, now nine and six, as to what they wanted to be and spending a good amount of time sewing and building costumes, we went to the annual Boo at the Zoo event at the Adelaide Zoo as the Ghostbusters. The packs are made of yoga mats. They're light enough that both of them managed to wear them for the whole event. We clearly look pretty good as random people were asking for photos with us and even made it. We made it onto the local news that evening. <laughs> Halloween still isn't as big a deal here in Australia as it is in the U.S., but my wife, originally from Indiana, makes sure we celebrate as much as possible and we have a great time. Keep up the good work, and I hope for the world's sake that America gets its shit together next week. Yeah, me too. Okay, 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 okay. These costumes are incredible. And then... You're, you don't cross the streams. Oh, that's so great. I absolutely love this. And then there they are. Those proton packs look really good, but make sure not to cross the streams. Total protonic reversal. We all know that. 
Next up from Tom, pronouns he and him. Here's a mother-daughter shit kids say. When my oldest was one and a half, she came to us crying. She finally sobbed out, I have a toe. We have no idea what she meant until she calmed down enough to point to her feet where a toe was sticking out of a hole. Almost 40 years later, the family still uses it has a toe to describe anything with a hole. (laughs) They just adopted a cat, but her one and a half year old can't say kitty and calls it shitty instead. (laughs) Love the show. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. I have a toe, as meaning I have a hole in my sock. That's adorable. And then from Chrissy, she, her, loyal listener here, can't start my day without some daily beans. I just wanted to remind all my fellow South Carolina daily beansers to get out the vote. South Carolina needs Joe Cunningham to beat McMaster. I also wanted to share some pics of my sweet queenie dressed up as a moo cow for Halloween and a new rescue, Democat, instead of Democrat. Democat Kitty, spooky. <gasps> Look at spooky. Oh, little tuxedo. Oh, and then there's the cow. That's brilliant. I'm going to send this to my friend, Devin Nunez's cow. Thank you so much for all of these pictures. I love pets and costumes. I love the inventions and the creations and the shout outs to people that you love. Thank you so much for sending it in. Send it all to me. You can do so by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. And thanks to our patrons. I really appreciate you too. Uh, And, um, you know, thanks to to Brad Jenkins from the AAPI Victory Fund for speaking with me today. I'll be back tomorrow with Dana. Maybe we'll find out when Kosh Patel testifies and spills the beans. Until then, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>